This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And we are welcoming you to week 12. That's part 12 of our series, He Gave Us Stories, which is based on the parables of Jesus. And this week, we come to the parable of the wedding feast as found in Matthew chapter 22. Sam, I think it's interesting that uh, once again, we're going to be talking about you know, marriage customs and, and wedding feasts. I mean, we had that last week with the 10 virgins where the bridesmaids were waiting for the bridal party. Um, so again, Jesus kind of appeals to that. You know, why do you think that is, that, 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 that that's such a common thing that Jesus kind of pointed back to wedding customs and feasts? I think partly because this is, you know, the culmination of a long, I don't know, courtship. <laughs> okay, know? all right. In the ancient, in the ancient world, you would have a groom that would purchase his bride. He would pay this great price uh, to the father to purchase his bride. And I think one of the things, you know, Jesus gives us multiple ways in which we are to relate to him. Mm-hmm. You know, he'll tell some parables where we're tenants and we're stewards of possessions. He'll tell other parables where we're servants. He'll tell parables, you know, where we're, you know, bridesmaids or virgins mm-hmm. or where we're, in this case, it's guests to a wedding feast and others where it's the actual bride. And so in each of those, you gain a glimpse of how we relate to God and, you know, it, it builds. And the fact that it's a wedding, God is wanting us to see that the the end of all things, you know, ultimately when we stand before God, you know, we call it judgment day. Mm-hmm. And you talk to most people when when they imagine the second coming or standing before the Lord – it's something that induces a great deal of of dread. Like, what's his verdict going to be? What's he going to say? You know, am I a good person, a bad person, whatever? And God, from God's perspective, what He wants us to see is, you know, this is this is meant to be something that's celebratory. Mm-hmm. You know, He's excited. He is welcoming a bride that He has purchased at great cost at the life of His Son to be with Him forever to come into this. You know, in a sense, an eternal celebration, an eternal feast, an eternal party where you get to experience and enjoy all of his infinite abundance uh, forever and ever and ever and ever. And so the fact that he invites us to compare the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven to a to a wedding feast is really um, kind of exciting. Like I am very happy that that's how the Lord sees it and if he sees it. You know, from from his standpoint, if he's like, man, I've seen human wedding feasts, you know, and the limitations of their wealth and the quality of their wine and food and everything else, like, I'm going to throw a wedding feast. Like, how awesome is that? <laughs> how awesome is that going to be? Yeah. Um, you know, in human understandings, like some of the funnest parties I've ever been to are weddings. People let loose. They dance. It's joyful. The wine is flowing. Like you're seeing people that you haven't seen in a long time. You know, it's just this really joyful, happy 
wonderful reunion where you're celebrating love. And God's like, yeah, it's going to be something like that, except hmm. on my scale. Hmm. You know, that's interesting. I, I asked the question and didn't really think about it, but we just had a wedding in our family back in December. Our son got married. Family was there from all over, and it was just this enormous celebration. And you're right. It was it was something that I found it to be deeply moving and deeply satisfying. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, I think that a wedding feast is a really good comparison as to how it's going to feel to be there with the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a that's a good answer. I, I was you know it's funny, I was thinking of it in terms of more of an individual relationship, like like God wants to marry you in a sense, and, and, and that mm-hmm. is true. But but the the family coming together and the and the bigger aspect of it was also uniquely satisfying mm-hmm. on a personal level, but also on a family level. So I, I yeah. think that's good. Yeah, and there's there's something about you know last week's parable and this week's parable where you kind of have to. It's almost confusing because it's like, wait a minute, I'm the bride, but the parable is asking me to relate to the the bridesmaids or the virgins. And in this parable, you know, again, the church is the bride, and yet we're being asked to to be a part of the parable as the invited guests who were there at the wedding. And there's a very real sense in which, you know, when you come to the wedding supper of the Lamb or the second coming, each and every one of us comes individually, you know, into Mm -hmm. this ceremony to play our part. But corporately, together, we are the bride. You know, we we come to make this, this celebration every one of us individually, we come to make this celebration even greater. But corporately together as the church of Christ, Jesus looks at us as his bride. So it's like you get to participate in the parable on two fronts, corporately as the bride, individually as the invited guest or the virgins or or whatever. Yeah. Well, um, so let's look at the invitations that went out because the the point or, or the or the narrative structure of this parable is that there are a series of invitations that go out and how they are managed and by whom um, is really going to give us the meaning behind uh, the parable. So Matthew mm-hmm. chapter 22, verse 1, it says, And again Jesus spoke to, them in parab- spoke to them in parables. Who was he addressing here? Was this uh, – uh, Well, he's talking to people who don't like him very much. <laughs> yeah, I get that impression. Was like, is there, there were like Pharisees around again? Yeah. Because they so been Jesus... – in, ch- in chapter 21, they'd been challenging him and that kind of oh, thing. Man. So, yeah. So if – I was talking with Will – about this earlier today in my office. And I was like, you know, the the disciples have been with Jesus. They've gone with him all over Galilee. They've been to Jerusalem multiple times with him. And Jesus is, is you know, he's provocative in some of his teachings, mm-hmm. but he's usually, you know, he doesn't smack people on the nose very often, you know. <laughs> he's usually tender. You know, he'll call things out, true. but he's just brilliantly kind and generous and gracious. And when he comes into Jerusalem, so the previous chapter, chapter 21 of Matthew is when he has his triumphal entry. You know, he comes in, you've got to imagine him, he's sitting on the donkey, people are laying down palm branches and clothes in front of him, and they're, you know, celebrating him as the coming Messiah. You know, this we believe that you are the one that the prophets wrote about. And the Pharisees are 
furious. Hmm. And they're, you know, they see, you know, the lame are coming to him, the blind are coming to him, and he's healing them, and the children are yelling Hosanna to the son of David, which was something you would only say to the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And they come and they're like, you better silence them. You better shut them up. And Jesus is, and the rest of Matthew 21 is going to get in with them because the Pharisees are like, hold on a minute. Like, look at the people that are drawn to him. It's all the crippled. It's all the poor. It's, it's you know, the tax collectors. It's all these people that are gross. And it, when you come toward the end of Matthew 21, Jesus looks at these people who would have been absolutely revered by the masses. These are the religious, you know, to-dos, the Pharisees sure. and the scribes and all these guys. And Jesus will say this to him, along with a lot of other things. He'll say, I say to you truly, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. And if you were there, like if you were one of the apostles, you'd have been like, Jesus, Jesus, no, no, not the time, not the time, not to them. You know, it would have been very, very uncomfortable. And right before he launches this parable, the last words he is going to say before he launches into this, he's talking to the chief priests and the Pharisees. He says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits, meaning people that are desperate, the lame, the poor, the broken, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the people who are humble, who recognize that they need a savior. It's going to be taken away from you and given to them. Yeah. And he says, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And what he's saying is, if you're too proud to recognize your need of a Savior, and you think that all these people that are drawn to me are not worthy of salvation and that you're so much better, the kingdom's going to be taken away from you and given to someone else. Mm-hmm. And then he tells the parable that we're going to get into today. And that's good context for it because the the parable here first is going to give us going to show us that God was that He invited and called the people to the feast who mm-hmm. He had originally chosen to be there. They were already on the guest mm-hmm. list, and He goes, "Come on in," and they wanted no part of it. So mm-hmm. it's not as though these people didn't have their chances, is what I'm getting at. Oh, many. Many, yeah. many, 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 many over centuries. <laughs> and it's always the same people. And this is, again, this is a gut check to the religious because, you know, the, the, remember, he's telling this parable to the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests, and they're the people who think, oh, I get it. God owes me. Look right. at all this stuff that I've done for God. Of course, you know, psh, I'm in. It's, and there's an arrogance about them. Yeah. And Jesus is giving them a gut check, and he's like, hold on a minute. Like, you think you're close to God. No, 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 no. You've been rejecting God, not just for decades, but for centuries. Your type, the self-righteous religious ones, you're the ones that have been rejecting God. Well, let me see if I can get through the first verse without interrupting myself again. (laughs) And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who are invited to the wedding feast – but they would not come. So in this scenario here, God the Father is the king, right? So that would mean mm-hmm. that the son is Jesus. So that's mm-hmm. where, you know, it's like we're the bride. So that's kind of like, but we're, you know, in a minute, we're also going to be the guests. But at this point, when it says, 
to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. That's a reference to mm-hmm. the Jews, right? To God's Very nation much so. Israel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is going back. I mean, God's servants in this would be the prophets. And the prophets were sent by God with with words from God inviting the people to come into relationship, inviting them to give their life to faithfulness, inviting them to walk away from the evil and self-centered pursuits and the abuse of the poor and to worship God with all that they had. And I mean, this goes back all the way to the days of Moses, which would have been 1,400 years before Jesus, where the prophet was calling the people and what were the people doing to Moses in response? You know, right. they grumbled and grumbled and grumbled. And Moses is like, what do you want me to do with them? <laughs> they don't want this. And I mean, you fast forward and you go through the period of judges and the people are doing the same thing. And you come through the, the book of Kings and you find that the people are in constant rebellion against God. He, and no matter how merciful and gracious he is, they're rejecting him. And specifically what he's going to be talking about in this parable, I think, is is – there's a flurry of prophets that come. Like when you get to the prophets and the minor prophets and those mm-hmm. books of the Bible, mm-hmm. most of them all come around the same time period. And that is right around the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. And God sent a flurry of prophets because the kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem was, was getting unbelievably wicked, horrendously wicked. They they had abandoned the worship of God. They were decorating the temple with pagan idols, and they had more or less spat in the face of God again. And God sends a flurry of prophets saying, no, 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 come to me, come to me, come to me. And he's been inviting his people into a relationship for 2,000 years, going back to the days of Abraham prior to this. And there's been one consistent pattern that you find. God is relentless in pursuing his people, and his people as a, as a whole, broadly speaking, are unbelievably cruel in response to God. They want nothing to do with him. They, mm. they, they, they shun him at every corner. They pursue their own kingdom. They do their own thing. And he's like, no, no, no. I want you to come to the wedding. Come to me. I, like, and they're like, nope. We got better things to do. We want nothing to do with you. You know, it's interesting. Um, I'm not uh, an expert on religions of that time and period and whatnot, but I'm trying to imagine one of these pagan gods pursuing their worshipers, pursuing their people. It seems as though they were, you know, a lot, all of these other, you know, Baal worshipers and different cultists, different pagan worships back then, that it was either it was transactional. It's like, hey, we mm-hmm. do this to keep our God happy so the crops grow and we're, you know, we have lots of babies and that kind of stuff. Or we serve our God because we're afraid of him. You know, it's like we don't want we don't want the, that to become angry with us. He'll crush us. Mm-hmm. And here you have the God of Israel saying, you know, to, to his people, I love you. I'm pursuing mm-hmm. you. I want you to be close to me, to be near to me. That that's an, another pretty unusual thing about the God of Israel as compared to the gods of the other nations mm-hmm. that he would be pursuing them in this way. Yeah. And and it's entirely based on, like you said, this. Uh, he wants your heart. Yeah. You know, when, when they would worship all these other gods that were scattered all through the land, essentially what they were worshiping is what they wanted. You know, we want fertility, and so we'll worship you, a god of fertility, right. because you serve our needs and our desires and our mission. And so then you have the Lord who's like, look, I want you to serve my agenda 
but the reward is I give you myself. Yeah. Baal doesn't want a relationship with you. He wants you to serve him and bow down to him. And, right. and you come and you ask him for children or crops, and, and he'll give you that. But he just wants you to slave away and to do what it is that he's asking. And God comes and says, you know, I might not give you everything, you know, that you want in this life, but I'll give you myself and the promise that I will be with you forever. Um, what greater gift can you give, by the way, than yourself? And then the sad thing is, is they're like, eh, I'd rather have healthy crops, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I don't want you, God. And I mean, it really is like when you look at the scriptures and you realize how intensely God loves his people and how relentlessly we reject him again and again. And I mean, there's a remnant and there's a faithful, you know, group of people always that his his worshiped the Lord and lifted his name up and and honored him but by and large the the big church the, the the visible church you know the visible Israel by and large most of them kind of shrugged and were like eh yeah. you know if you can give me something I'll worship you but you I don't want you yeah so the first round of invitations ended poorly when it says that they <laughs> would not come and then it got worse <laughs> Uh, It says, again, he sent other servants, so another round of prophets, saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So here's a situation where... The king, God, the Lord, extends this invitation to his people who roundly ignore him. None of them wanted to have anything to do with him. And yet the Lord goes forward with preparing, quote unquote, the wedding feast, you know, whatever. It's like he prepares the feast anyway. So, mm-hmm. you know, God continues to be faithful to do his part of things, even when his people have like paid him no mind. And do they, respond going wow you 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 actually laid out the feast this is great no they literally walk away or they kill his messengers it's like mm-hmm. I, it's hard to, it's just hard to imagine how it could get any worse yeah i mean you'd look at that and you're like who would who would do that and that's exactly how we've treated the lord you know he has been faithful to take care of them right. he delivered them time and time again um, and and here, like in the days of Jesus, it's like, what more could I present to you? You know, I am I'm I'm wanting to bring you in. I'm wanting to you know honor you, celebrate you. I want to celebrate this relationship. And it says that they you know mistreat the messengers and they killed them, and that was a very real problem. Jesus, when he's speaking in Jerusalem and he's going after the Pharisees, one of the things he says is, "You're you you religious leaders." are the ones who killed and stoned the prophets. When, when he's weeping over Jerusalem at another point, right? And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you like a mother hen gathers chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And he refers to Jerusalem as the city who stones and murders the prophets sent to her. You know, this is, this is really, in reality, how God has been treated. He's been sending all these messengers, come, come to the wedding feast, come to the party. Like, it's all my expense. I'm the king. You're not going to have any party like this ever and it never before, never again. Come, like, I've prepared it all. It's all by me. 
and the people have either shrugged or they've murdered the people. And it's fascinating because we think, oh, I could never relate to that. Um, one of the things that I'm toying around with in, in my head is when it says you know, that it's to be compared to a wedding feast in the, in the Greek, the word that we translate singular feast is actually plural. And it's kind of weird because it says it's it would literally say a king who gave wedding feasts plural for his son, and we go wait what what in the world is that like so we clean it up in the English like it's one big party, but in the ancient world you would literally have multiple nights of feasting. This wasn't a one and done wedding party like we have now. Back then you would celebrate a wedding for multiple days, multiple evenings. There would be feast upon feast upon feast. And so he's calling on a commitment. It's not saying, hey, you could come out for a date night with your wife or something. It's saying this is this is a commitment. This is going to be a big celebration. I want you to I want you to set things aside and show me that this is priority. We're going to celebrate my son. And so what do they do? They're like, eh, that's a big commitment. And they paid no attention. And one goes to his farm and he's like, you know, I got a business to take care of. I, I need to I need to worry about my stuff. And everybody shrugs. And God's like, can can you can you set aside some mm. time to like come and celebrate with me to to show honor to my son and and all that we've done it's all at my expense will you just come and they're like yeah you know that's a big commitment you know you're you're asking me for seven nights of feasting i you know i got a farm to take care of i got a business to take care of and so they shrug they pay no attention essentially and they're worried about their own little kingdoms. And man, I, I sense that in me sometimes where I'm like, yeah, 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 God, but but I've got all this stuff in my world to worry about. And it's just natural as humans that we can get so focused on what's right in front of us in our own lives that we fail to recognize what he's inviting us into and to celebrate um, and and to make the show about us, you know, yeah. it's that way. Hold on, I got too much going on in my life to be worried about your kingdom, um, and you know that's a shot across the bow. It is, it is an ask. You're, yeah. He's asking you. I want you to set aside multiple nights to come to this feast for my son, and it's a big ask. And all of the people that are, you know, the most quote unquote worthy to come are like. I got better things to do. That's a big ask. No thanks. Mm. And, you know, the people never seem to learn because this pattern of them killing God's messengers, it's not – that wasn't just a one and done. That wasn't like, oh, yeah, they killed a couple of prophets 500 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's It was a pattern that they did this <laughs> again yep. and again and and they killed John the Baptist, and then they killed mm-hmm. the apostles of Jesus. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like they oh, the very did first prophet Moses, over, yeah, over and over and over again. Yeah, Moses goes to God repeatedly, like, "Help! They want to kill me." <laughs> so, like, I mean, every prophet that comes, you know, is is targeted usually because they have things to say that people don't want to hear. Yeah, and and what is it that they have to say? The word of God. And so people, when they hear what God wants from them, become angry, especially the religious who think they have God figured out, who think, you know, God owes me. And when they hear, you know what, God is not pleased in, in what you're doing, oh, we don't like those prophets. <laughs> we, we want to kill those prophets. And you have to ask yourself, all right, so he's the king and they've killed my messengers. So what am I going to do? Well, verse 7 says the king was angry. 
and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Yeah, and and that I think you know you and I were talking during the week, and I was like, is this a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD seventy? And you're like, well, or is it a, a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in five eighty six BC? Or what about seven twenty two when the Assyrians took down the the <laughs> northern kingdom? So yeah. you know this this pattern the answer is yes. Yeah, the answer <laughs> is yes. All of the above. So this pattern of the Lord sending. Troops, you know, I mean, yeah, it was the Assyrians, then it was the Babylonians, and then it was the Romans, but don't make any mistake about it. These were, these were essentially the troops carrying out God's judgment on his people for how those people had treated God's messengers, God's servants, God's prophets. Um, and you would think, at least I would think, that after the first five or six times that happened to me, <laughs> <laughs> I'd learn my lesson and be like, all right, let's not kill the Lord's prophets this time, guys. Um, remember what we did last time? It took us it took us hundreds of years to rebuild the temple. So let's just not kill his prophets this time. <laughs> but the problem is, is every time, every time they would have prophets, they could never tell the prophets because they always assumed I am on the Lord's side. You know, the prophets never – like when Jeremiah, for example, Jeremiah comes right before the, the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in 586 BC, and he is there preaching you know, against their wickedness and how they had turned against the Lord. And, you know, Isaiah is, you know, a little bit, is quite a bit before Jeremiah, but Daniel's at the same time, Ezekiel's at the same time. And, and what they are saying, they're not coming and saying, look at all these pagans. These pagans are just so bad. The prophets come and say, my, you know, the Lord's people, the people who call themselves by God's name, they're the ones that are driving him crazy. They're the ones that have made him angry. And why? Why does he make him angry? Well, because the kings right before the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC, so 600 years before Jesus, you know, you have kings that are sacrificing their children in the fires of pagan worship. You have priests that are exploiting the people and taking bribes and mistreating women. And there's something in us that when we when we just think about the Bible and we think, oh, you know, this is this is removed, this is very old, you know, we think, man, he, he destroyed their city. Wow, it killed the murderers. And we we want no part of it. But what if I said to you, when we think of somebody who walks around in the name of the Lord, right, and they receive great um, – they have a great reputation because people think, oh, that's a man of God. This is the city of God. And then you find out that they secretly have been using that banner to exploit people and abuse people. You think to yourself, there's like a special anger that yeah. comes out when you yeah. find somebody who's running around under the banner of God who's exploiting and abusing people. And they could never self-diagnose. You know, you think of – I mean, there's probably names that are coming into everybody's mind sure. of people who've run under the banner of the gospel, sure. who've – you know, taken advantage of that title and abused people. There is a special zeal in the Lord. You know, when he says not many of you should become teachers, <laughs> you know, or, you know, that there's a there's a heavy calling when you're a pastor not to use that status to exploit or abuse people or to make it about you or to enrich yourself or to advance your agenda rather than God's. Like, 
that should be something that every pastor kind of trembles with. It is a mighty calling. And back in these days, you have all the priests, you have the kings, you have you know false prophets that are doing all of these things in the name of advancing their own cause, and they're trampling the poor. They're trampling the widow. They're trampling the orphan. They're trampling the foreigner. And that infuriates the Lord. And he sends these prophets, and the prophets are basically saying like, hey, wake up. You're the bad guy. You're the one that's running around under God's name doing things that absolutely make God furious. And they're like, you're a false prophet. How dare you say that about his priest and his kings? And and they end up killing the prophets and labeling them as false prophets. Hmm. Um, and God's been trying to get his people's attention basically since he had a people. <laughs> yeah. And we keep going, oh, he's not talking about us. We're we're not the we're not the wicked ones. Yeah. Um yeah. We we refuse to learn the uh, the the whole thing of uh, of blame shifting is not a new concept. <laughs> it's yeah, something that true, true. humankind has been doing for millennia. Um, so then the king it says in verse eight. Then he said to his servants, "The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy." As we just talked about, <laughs> go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now, a couple of notes before I ask you the question about who bad and good is talking about. Um, you know, when I was kind of studying this passage and breaking it down, it's interesting to me this idea of, uh, you know, go therefore to the main roads. That term main roads, it's actually uh, the, the, the actual word they use means the intersection of roads. And it just kind of, it's, it's a peculiar phrase and it, it, it referred to that area in a city where literally just the public would gather to do commerce. You know, it was like basically God saying, go out into the heart of the business district where everybody is, you know, go to the it, – it's not like he's saying go down to the street corner and if anybody passes by, it's like it's targeted. He's like, go there into the heart of the city, into where the where all the action is happening and invite everybody there. So it was interesting to me that – um, that this is a as broad an invitation as it could be. He's inviting mm-hmm. literally everybody to mm-hmm. the wedding feast at this point. Yeah. Um, so now, that, that that word is literally like in an ancient city, you would only have a few gates that sure. led out of the city, and so like you're talking, these are the main roads where there's tons of traffic. Yep. You know, and he's going to places where there's just massive loads of people. You know, indiscriminately. Now, what does it mean there when it talks about uh, those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good? That's an interesting, I guess, phrase or or observation. Mm -hmm. Um, They invited bad people to the wedding feast also. What's, uh, you know, what's Jesus getting at there? (laughs) If he invited people, he invited bad people. Yeah. You know, so (laughs) – when you so remember he's talking to the Pharisees and the and the scribes and the religious leaders sure. and they very much have this dichotomy um, that there's good people like us you remember the 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 parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector Lord I thank you that I'm not made like him there's good people and there's bad people and he has just announced the wedding feast is ready but those invited were not worthy 
And so the Pharisees, if you if you go back to the end of chapter 21, it says G, that they perceived <laughs> that Jesus was talking about them. And so when he winds up another parable, they absolutely know he's talking about them sure. again. And he's just declared, you're not worthy to come to the wedding feast. And so already they're going to be like, oh. <gasps> But we're the religious ones. We're the ones who know the law and keep the law. We're the ones who celebrate and run the temple courts and we do all these things. We're so close to God. Like, how dare you call us not worthy? And then he makes it even more scandalous when he says, I want you to go out and 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 these people are going to go out and invite everybody, both good and bad. And one of the things that they had been you know, really giving Jesus the business about is he – doesn't seem to have boundaries in who he'll talk to. You know, he'll go to dinner with a Pharisee like Simon in Luke chapter 7. You know, say he, he's not above talking to the religious leaders. He'll meet with Nicodemus, you know, no problem. But he also meets with prostitutes yeah. and drunkards. Yeah. And he gets accused of being a drunkard because he hangs out with drunkards. And, you know, he, he welcomes tax collectors. Look, he's even got one among his inner circle, you know, his 12 apostles. And so he's saying, like, the good and the bad. Of course, like, if you know theology, there's no one who's worthy to go to the wedding feast. So it's right. in that sense, you know, Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Like, that's true. All of us, comparatively to God, are bad. Right. But next to the Pharisees, he's saying, you know, everybody, he's inviting everybody, the good, which the Pharisees would have been like, oh, people like us. Um. But also the bad, the scandalous people, the people who have no business being with the king. It's it's indiscriminate invitations, and they can't make sense of it. Gentiles, tax collectors, prostitutes, like he's basically poor, rich. He's taking every barrier, and he is smashing them, yeah. and the Pharisees can't handle that. They need barriers. They need, you know, I'm good enough. You're not good enough. I'm rich enough. You're not. I'm the right gender. I'm the right race. I'm the right this. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. You go out to the main gate of people going in and out of the city, everyone you come across, and I want you to invite the morally good, the morally bad, this race, that race. I don't care. I'm not giving you any, any qualifiers at all. You go invite everyone. Mm. And the wedding hall was filled with the guests. <laughs> and they would have looked at that party and been wildly offended. Is this the point where we as the Gentiles, you know, we've in, now we're entering the story? Because it sounded like a family fight before this. Like, you know, the, <laughs> the Lord was inviting his people Israel and they ignored him. And the Lord was inviting his people Israel again and they killed the invitation bearers. They killed mm -hmm. the prophets. And now it seems like the Lord is saying, okay, fine, everybody's welcome. So is, mm -hmm. you know, uh, theologically speaking, is this when we, the Gentiles, we enter into the picture? In mass, I'll, I'll say that. So okay. you go back and you go in history, God has always been welcoming the Gentiles into the covenant family of God. Individual you know, Gentile Moses, people, sure, yeah. Correct. So, or when Moses comes out of Egypt, we're told that lots of other people come along with the Israelites, and they're eventually going to be circumcised and brought into the nation of Israel. Or, you know, David will marry somebody who's from a Gentile line, and Ruth is a Gentile that's grafted in. And so you see Gentiles that are welcomed into the family of God, but it's like a here and a there. 
what he's saying now is, okay, it's not going to be the occasional person that's grafted in anymore. Now I'm telling you, you're about to see the floodgates open <laughs> and they're all coming. And sure enough, within the Pharisees' lifetimes, like the great controversy that's going to come in the early church is the flood of Gentiles that pour into the covenantal family of God. And they they got to figure this out. Like, are, do we allow them? Like, they're what if they're not circumcised? What if this? What if that? Because Jesus is about to – and that, that's when you see – the great masses begin to be welcomed into the wedding feast is after Jesus gives the instruction, this is who I want you to invite. And in the aftermath, the apostles are going to carry out his wishes. They will go out and they will invite everyone. They will go to foreign lands to invite everyone, all genders. There's neither male nor female. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither Greek, uh, you know, Gentile or Jew. Like all the barriers get demolished and the invitation is now in mass going to everyone yeah. everyone it's always been open to everyone yeah. but now it's like the floodgates just broke and i one of the verses that i tucked in for personal worship related verses this week was uh, acts chapter 13 46 and 47 it says and paul and barnabas spoke out boldly saying it was necessary that the word of god be f- spoken first to you Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So there was a point in the early history of the church where this was a conscious thing, like we're going to go out in force and and begin inviting the Gentiles into this new thing. But when Jesus told this parable, that hadn't happened yet. So Jesus mm-hmm. was actually in you know, he this parable was looking back on what Israel had been doing with the Lord and with the Lord's prophets, but it was also looking ahead. He's saying at some point here, this invitation is going to go out to everybody. Um, mm-hmm. Is that is that accurate, or am I am I jumping my timelines here? So I I think that's right. But the Pharisees would have already had an axe to grind with Jesus, okay? Because he goes into like Phoenician territories and he talks to the Syrophoenician woman and tells people that you know her faith is greater than all of Israel. He goes into areas like the Decapolis, which were ten Greek cities on the the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which was almost entirely Gentile. And he's preaching and welcoming people into saving faith, and everybody's going, "Wait a minute, he's what? What is he doing? He's not allowed to do this, mm-hmm. you know. He's he's welcoming in non-Jews, and and he was already doing this prior, to, and he was bragging about, you know, the faith of the centurion who whose servant was sick. You know, he's he's constantly boasting about the impressiveness of the faith of the Gentiles over what he sees among his own Jewish brethren mm-hmm. and and sisters. And so they're already angry at him because he seems to be really – and the Samaritan parables and all of that kind of sure, stuff. Sure, sure. Like he's, he is constantly talking about the Gentiles in impressive terms, which really infuriated the Pharisees because the Pharisees believed like, no, 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 we're children of Abraham. And they're thinking bloodline, like we're special because of our race. And Jesus is tearing all that down, mm-hmm. which is exactly what, you know uh, – 
the the Jews were to be a light. The Messiah was to be a light to the Gentiles, as were the Jewish people. And instead of being a light to the nations to draw them to the Lord, they kind of put a bushel over their light mm-hmm. and said, "No, no, no, this light is for us." Yeah, you know, to hell with them, literally. Yeah. And Jesus is is taking that that basket off the lamp and saying, "No, no, no, this light is for everyone." Um, and the Pharisees don't like that very much. Yeah. So by inviting everyone, uh, the wedding hall is now full of guests. And we have a very interesting exchange then. Uh, Verse 11, it says, But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So this exchange Whoa. here at the end, yeah, I'm like, is it? this is like, wait a minute. Um, so this guy, this this wedding guest, and, and this is where you and I were talking about some of the wedding customs and stuff like that and how mm-hmm. it, it was a wedding custom back then in some Eastern uh, customs of their how they put together these big wedding feasts that they would provide – the host would provide some linens for people to wear when they came in um, so that everybody would look the same and so that everybody would have the – and they would wear it as a way of honoring the host and the bridal party and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, of course, then you sent me a picture of a bride surrounded by her bridesmaids going, we do the same thing today. Everybody mm-hmm. dresses the same way so that the bride stands out. So mm-hmm. there is this like <laughs> custom at weddings and wedding feasts that – uh, you know, people wear similar clothes so that the person who's in the tuxedo and the and the other person that's in the wedding dress, those people, you know, really stand out. So mm-hmm. as I was reading this and thinking about that, I was thinking about all of the things that this guy, this, you know, our, our dude hanging out in his shorts and his Crocs, that <laughs> what what he was communicating, because I think what he was communicating, I mean, first of all, he's saying – my clothes are every bit as good as the clothes that you're mm-hmm. offering me. I don't need to put your clothes on. And he's also saying, I deserve attention every bit as much as the bride and the bridegroom deserve attention. I mm-hmm. want this focused on me because I'm different. You know, I'm sitting here in my shorts and my Crocs and my Hawaiian shirt. And, you know, I've, everybody else is drinking a, 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 a mug of wine and I've got my beer here or whatever. He's just different, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so this guy was really kind of going out of his way to be offensive to the king. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet he was invited in. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of like – I'm trying to understand as I'm looking at this parable, he was invited by the king into the wedding feast. But clearly this was not a guy who saw mm-hmm. himself as being part of the wedding guests. He saw himself as being other or separate or mm-hmm. better. In our story here – who do we? Who is this guy? Is, is this guy? Is he us? Is he Pharisees? Uh, he's a Pharisee. Hopefully not us. Okay. Okay. So a Pharisee. <laughs> hopefully maybe. not us. But maybe. So the way, like, why? So here's the question. Okay. Why in the world in a first century wedding do they pass out these wedding garments to all the guests? Now yeah. remember. He's gone out into the the streets, and so he's got good and bad coming, Gentile and Jew coming. He's right. got you know the the drunk uncle, but he's also got the stuffy guy over here. You know, every, everybody's coming to this thing, 
And so in a first century culture, they did this in Greek culture as well. Like we have some examples in ancient Greek culture where they did this at their weddings. They did this in rituals. And and when you would come into ancient Israel and Baal worship, you would have to wear particular garments to come into the temple. Like this was common in multiple things. So when everybody would show up at the building, you know, they were welcome. They had been invited. They would be given a garment to change into. And the, there was a couple of reasons for that. First off, it was to to get rid of anybody feeling a stigma. So if you were the poorest beggar on the the side of the street and your clothes were tattered and they smelled of urine or you know waste or whatever, guess what? Like here is this beautiful garment, and and just by that, you're all of a sudden elevated. You, mm-hmm. You're given this beautiful linen garment. You're no longer to be embarrassed of what you bring. But then on the other side of that coin, you know, when I see this guy who comes in with his own stuff, like I used to think, okay, here's somebody in a tank top with his Crocs and all that kind of stuff. I don't think he's a slob. I think he's a snob. And what he what he can't stand is just what you're saying. Like I, if I'm getting into this thing, I've I've got to show everybody that I'm better than them. You know, I'm coming in with my Sunday best that no one else can compete in. Look at what I have made. Look what I can afford. Look at all the stuff that I'm bringing. I have to be better than the riffraff who's showing up and getting the same wedding garment. I'm not putting on the same clothing as that person. And so, you know, but by wearing the same garment, you know, you think of this like we talked about with bridesmaids in a wedding. They all look the same Mm -hmm. so that your attention is drawn to the bride. Right. You know, and that's the point. And what it does, and Jesus talks about this, you know, that all things will be leveled. The poor are going to be brought up and the rich are going to be, you know, brought down. And what this person can't stand is I cannot wear the same thing as that guy. Mm. I have to be different. You've got to brag on me. I've got to be noticed. I you know, I've worked hard for this for this outfit. I've worked hard for the stripes and the dyes and all the things that make my garment beautiful and now you want me to take it off and put on the same wedding garment as that guy? I can't stand it. No, I will not wear it. And so you know, he's drawing attention to himself. He refuses to humble himself. He needs to be noticed for his own stuff. And the the king comes to him and says, how would you get in here without a wedding garment? And his answer tells us everything. So before you think, man, this is really mean, it says he's speechless. Yeah. What does that mean? It means that he's busted. He knows that he has absolutely no excuse. He's He's just – his basic answer would be, I don't want to wear this wedding garment mm. because I, I need this to be about me. And the king says, you can't be here with yeah. that attitude. Yeah. If if you need to show yourself better than everyone else, if you feel like you belong here because of something that you bring to the table, you can't stay here. Yeah. And it's tragic. So he gets bound and cast into the outer darkness. And it's like, okay – this is the point at the parable where it's like you got to step back and go, okay, Jesus isn't a fashion critic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's he's not going, oh, that clothing is offensive. You know, that's not what it's talking about, your spiritual clothing. Yeah. Um, and in that case, I have absolutely 100% no more right to be at the wedding feast than the worst human being 
that makes it into the kingdom of God. Yeah. I have no more right. If if I'm bringing this parable into you know modern times, a modern setting, you know, I sort of looked at this as being a you know kind of an internal thing in in, in our modern setting. Um, you know, because Paul, for example, talks about I'm going to be found not in my own righteousness. But in the mm-hmm. righteousness which is of Christ by faith, like he's going to put on the righteousness of Christ, like a robe. You know, and in Isaiah, it talks about the Lord clothes mm-hmm. me in the robe of righteousness and the garments of salvation. So, you know, that this is about, you know, for, for me today, for my modern day application of this, I'm saying, you know something? When I'm, <laughs> when I'm coming before the Lord, you know, it's not coming before the Lord feeling like I belong there for any reason other than the righteousness of, you know, his righteousness that he has given me, that that imputation, if I can use a theological mm-hmm. term, of righteousness that allows me to be there because just like everybody else that's going to be there on that wedding feast, you know, in that day – all of us are going to be there because God has given us his righteousness. It's the only thing mm-hmm. that makes us able uh, to, to stand in there. So, you know, I kind of feel like this, too, is a bit of a gut check. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I, I don't know that it's common. I don't know, like, like, if it's a lot of people in the visible church, but I'm, I know there's some because I've had conversations with people that have said things that you're like, you know, they'll, they'll say something. It just makes you kind of cock your head and make a funny noise. It's tempting to want to get to heaven and to say, yeah, yeah, God, I, I, I know that you're responsible for me being here. But really, like, uh, I, I'm less fortunate than that guy over right. there. I mean, right. after all, I'm a pastor and I was a headmaster and I lead Bible studies and I da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. There's something in human nature that on that day wants God to go – all right, well, we let them in, but you know, you were you were a lot easier to let in, Sam. Yeah. And and we want to earn it. Like even even though we know that it's by grace alone, we there's still something in us that wants to be noticed and congratulated as being better than everyone else. Yeah. And the reality is I required the son of God to die yeah. for me. No less so than anyone else that will be in heaven. Yeah. I require his covering. And, and Isaiah, when it, you, know, you mentioned that verse where it says, he, this is Isaiah 61.10, yeah. where it says, he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That's what it's talking about here. And in that, it goes on and he talks about, as a bridegroom decks himself out like a priest. I mean, he's talking about this in a wedding context and not much after that is the famous passage where he says, we've all become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. It's a very nice way of saying, by the way. Yeah. And so what is he saying? He's saying like, we're tempted to want to brag about ourselves, which is, you know, Jesus, remember, he's telling this this parable to Pharisees. They want to come forward and be like, no, 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 you don't understand. Look at the life I've lived. Look at all this good stuff I do. And Isaiah's like, you don't understand. All your righteous deeds, your best stuff next to God is like a filthy garment. It's disgusting. You need to be clothed in the same righteous garment that the person you consider beneath you needs to be clothed in. When you step in front of the presence of God, there's no one who deserves him more or less. You're all desperate beggars. 
And I, I was reading uh, Spurgeon's sermon, and I just I love that guy, man. He is <laughs> he's such a preacher. But he says, you know, I imagine the party at heaven will be much more fun because it will be filled with beggars. He's like, when you hold a party and you – of course, he's living in, in British, you know, Victorian era. Right. And so I'm imagining like – he's like, when you, when you hold a party for people who are used to being honored, it's very stuffy. You know, everybody's there and it's kind of like, ugh, you know, oh, I wonder how this dish is going to be, if this will meet my standards. He's like, you take a bum off the streets. You take the drunkard who's never been honored, who's never had anybody pat him on the back and say welcome and and you know give him something to be excited about. You bring him into the king's palace and you start serving him dishes that he's never experienced in his life. And he is going to be through the roof. He is going to be cheering every time the angels come with a new dish. He is going to be beside himself at how fortunate he feels because he doesn't deserve any of this and he's never experienced it before. And he is going to delight with such joy to be in this wedding feast because he realizes he doesn't deserve it. But you take the uptight, stiff, religious people who feel like good people – and they'll stand in front of God and look at his grace and it'll be far less amazing to them. Yeah. And like what, what Spurgeon is saying is we all need to be amazed by grace. We all need to recognize that. <laughs> and when it comes to, to warranting God's favor and receiving salvation, we are all beggars that do not deserve to be in the courtyard or the palace of the king. Right. It is only his gracious invitation. And he still like he prepares it all. He this grand feast and and by the way, he paid for this feast at the life of his own son on a cross. Like we should be far more grateful as the people of God and far less like these religious leaders who shrug at his invitation. And anytime that you have that impulse to like, you know, look around and compare yourself to anybody else that you see, that should be a warning. Because, I mean, that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the thing here is that you're not comparing yourself with anybody else that's there. You know, the comparison is between your righteousness and God's righteousness. And his righteousness is the standard. I mean, that's what, you know, when Jesus was mm-hmm. talking to the Pharisees, or actually wasn't talking to the Pharisees, about the Pharisees in Matthew 5, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that, of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, the way that our, the way that your righteousness is going to exceed that of the most righteous people is that you're going to exchange it for the righteousness of God. You know, there's that, mm-hmm. there's that great exchange where he takes upon himself our sin and he mm-hmm. gives to us his righteousness. Um, mm-hmm. Not a not a fair deal for him, but a great deal for us. You know, this goes back like at the very beginning, you know, because we think of coverings. This theme runs cover to cover in the scriptures. You remember at the beginning when when man spat in God's face and said, you know, I, we want to do it on our own. And before God expels them from the Garden of Eden, what does he do? He gives them a covering. Something yeah, has to die. Him, sure. Yeah. 
to, to give them a covering so that they're not ashamed in their nakedness. They have a covering. It's really merciful. And then God escorts them out of the garden, and you go through the rest of the story, and there's all these instances where somebody's covering brings them you know, a, a change in circumstance. Jacob will receive the blessing of the father because he puts on the garment of Esau. Joseph's situation changes when he's given a garment from the hand of Pharaoh. I mean, you walk through the prophets, talk about this garment being salvation. And when you get to the apostle Paul, because we haven't mentioned him yet, <laughs> well, no, it's like I did, obligatory. I did, I did mention him briefly from Acts. So yeah. Okay. That, well, yeah. He, he's been here um, a little bit. So – but and Romans, I'm just just walk through like hear this because Paul, this is not a minor point to him. The clothing you wear when you stand before God, ready? Romans thirteen fourteen, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Ready? First Corinthians, the next one, First Corinthians fifteen fifty three. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. It's telling you you need to be clothed in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 2 and 3, meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Galatians three twenty seven. all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. In Ephesians, it'll say that you're to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. It's talking about Christ. In Colossians, you have put off the old self with its practices and you've put on clothing language, the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And I used to teach my kids like when we were talk students when I was a teacher and I would say like at the beginning – God created man in his image, man and woman in his image, perfect in his image, and then man defiled that image. It's like, you know, we we didn't lose it. We're still made in the image of God as sinners, but it's defiled. It's not perfect. It's not righteous. It's not innocent anymore. And then he goes forward, and the rest of the story is trying to figure out how in the world can man who has this this defiled image, how can he recapture the image of God again? And Jesus is the answer for that because he is the image of the invisible God. That's what Colossians tells us. He is the exact representation of God. He comes into this world. He goes to the cross not just to pay for your sins, which he will do on the cross. He takes your sins and pays the penalty for them. But on the cross, he takes the perfect righteousness of God. And he does what? He clothes you with it so that that defiled image is no more. And you once again are made in the pure image of God with his perfect righteousness over you so that you can be restored into the presence of God. Um, it's like a, it's like a, to, to get more graphic, it's like, you know, the fall was this beautiful person who looked at a fire and thought, oh, that fire is beautiful and dove into it and emerged wildly disfigured, and Jesus comes to give of himself this great spiritual skin graft so that your beauty is not just restored to what it was. No, no, no. You get the covering of the Son of God and all of his righteousness to where you're exalted way beyond what Adam could have ever dreamed of, but that covering is absolutely 
amazing. It's essential. You can't get there on your own. You need his covering. You need his righteousness. Because yeah. no matter how much you come and say, look at my covering. Look at these medals I've won. Look at this over here. Look at all the things that I've done. Look at this nice, nice stripe and all this dye that I, you know, back in the ancient world, they were massively expensive to, to get a good garment. All of it will be filthy rags next to the covering that Christ gives to you. Yeah. So don't go there thinking, I've got to prove myself. I've got to show them what I bring to the table. Stop. Stop. Yeah. It, it would be like looking at the cross and the cost of that garment that the king offers you as you walk into this wedding feast. It would be like looking at the cross and going, yeah, well, that's nice. You know, That garment's that's nice, but I, you know what? I'd... It's not good enough for me. I'd rather wear my own. Mm. Like how offensive that garment came at great cost mm. to the sun. And mm. it's far greater than any rags you bring to the table, I promise. So then we conclude with his last phrase where he says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Um, that's one of those, you know, Jesus – Sam, a lot of these things, Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. The gate's wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those mm-hmm. go down that, many go down that way, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those that find it are few. So he had a lot of these, hey, you know what? It's not going to be a really big opening that you have to, to, to fit through. That mm-hmm. kind of stuff is uncomfortable to hear. You're like, no, that sounds like there's, you know, there's going to be lots of us that are pushing and shoving trying to get through mm-hmm. this. But it's not going to be that way, is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it says, you know, most of the people that he invited chose not to come. And when he says many are called, you know, I love the fact that that's there because, you know, Christianity takes a lot of knocks for being exclusive, you mm-hmm. know, that you have to go through Jesus. But think about who he calls. He, he, like we talked about, he calls everyone, all races, all genders, the good, the bad. Like, what are the boundaries here? He calls everybody, anybody who's willing to come. But then he closes by saying, few are chosen. When, when the gates close and the wedding feast begins, there's going to be few people that are chosen to be the final guest. And, you know, I, I think this is probably intended as a jab at the Pharisees. Remember, that's who he's talking to with this parable. And if you went up to a Pharisee or a self-righteous religious leader of the day and you said, many are called, few are chosen, they would have said, amen. But at the end of this parable, what Jesus is communicating to them is, few are chosen, and with your self-righteousness and the way that you hold yourself out as superior over everyone else, as the parable says, you are the ones that have been found not worthy. Mm. There will be few that are chosen, and it's not going to be people like you who think you deserve it. Mm. Mm. And that's a gut check. Mm. So I'd say, you know, (laughs) grace is amazing. And if I came to you and I said, you know, few are chosen, and you think about, you know, the fact that God looked at you as so absolutely precious that he would give his son to purchase you from every fault, from every sin and scar and shame and guilt and everything else, if that doesn't absolutely amaze you, if you hear the few are chosen and you're like, yep, that should be me, and it doesn't amaze you that God went to such great lengths for you, then you need some time to reflect on how absolutely, you know, we're beggars. We have no right to claim this as something we deserve. 
And the more we bask and we revel in the fact that he has chosen us, not because we're good enough, but in spite of the fact that we're terrible. Yeah. Um, if that doesn't cause us to to rejoice, if we get to the point where when we hear the gospel, it's like, yeah, 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 that, you know, but, you know, he's getting me and you know what, that's that's good because, you know, I'm a pretty good person. If it doesn't make us go, oh my gosh, you would go through all that to redeem me, then we're a lot more like the Pharisees mm-hmm. than we want to admit. I recall the story of uh, you know, a famous evangelist who was engaged in a conversation with somebody regarding this idea of God's chosen or God's elect. And the person that he was talking to, um, you know, was saying, well, you know, Mr. Preacher Man, if, uh, if your position is that no one is able to actually come to the Lord unless the Lord calls him, why are you wasting time preaching the gospel to those that are not called? And the guy said, well, if the Lord would be so kind as to paint a bright red E on the forehead of those who are elect, I shall stop wasting time preaching to the others, but until then, I shall preach the gospel to everyone. Um, and, you know, so that's what I've always thought about when I've thought about that, that phrase, many are called, but few are chosen. It's like, you know, the invitation of the gospel is to go out into the major intersections. It's to go out into the highways and byways. We're, mm-hmm. we are called to take the gospel to the world, absolutely everybody in the world. Like we're, we're to preach the gospel and share the gospel with everyone. And then, God will do, will work from there, and those who come will be those who He has effectually called. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not to, we're not we're not the sorting hat. We're not the one that sits there and goes, ah, yes, a Slytherin with you and Gryffindor with you. No, it doesn't happen that way. <laughs> you know, God God will handle it. We we take mm-hmm. the gospel to everyone, and then God handles it from there. You know, you talk to most preachers. Um, not to belabor this point, but, you know, of all the different places that I teach, you know, there's never a time where I'm talking about the scriptures that I don't enjoy it. Like, I, mm-hmm. I love talking about Jesus. I love talking about the scriptures. But I think one of my favorite venues where I get to talk about Jesus is in recovery ministries. And there's mm-hmm. one in particular in downtown Fort Lauderdale where people are coming in from opioid addictions and their lives have fallen apart and they've betrayed their family and they're just becoming sober and they're realizing the gravity of what they've done and they're alone in this recovery ministry and you get to talk with them about how precious they are in the sight of God and by far greater numbers when you preach to those people they hear that and they go he still loves me and it's absolutely precious to them because they know their need of the Savior. The Pharisees didn't know their need of the Savior, and so when they would hear the message of the gospel, it would bounce off their foreheads and hard hearts, and it never penetrated. Mm. And it was, you know, when I talk to those, you know, people that are in recovery, people that are desperate for salvation because they know they need it, it always strikes a little bit of a chord of jealousy in me because I've grown hard-hearted. Salvation and grace isn't as amazing as it once was. And it's at those moments where I need to really examine myself and repent of the sin that grieves God even more than the sins of those recovering addicts, which is self-righteousness. If you look at the sin that drives Jesus the most bonkers and where he gets angry – 
is people who feel entitled to grace. Mm. Um, it is the the moral, righteous, uh, self congratulatory people. And man, I got plenty of that. And so, mm. if you want to be broken in front of Jesus, you recognize that's us, man. We're coming before a king of overwhelming grace and kindness and shrugging. Like, what greater cruelty can there be than to be counted among that lot? Repent of that. Be amazed that God still chases you when you have a heart like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's wonderful. He's just good. He'll never stop chasing after you. He'll never stop inviting you. And so always be eager to come into the courts of the king yeah. for a feast that you don't deserve. Yeah. Amen. Well, that's a good word, and uh, we'll let it stand on that. Uh, folks, we hope that you have enjoyed your time with us today, and as we've talked about the parable of the wedding feast from Matthew chapter 22, um, if you would like to correspond with us, we've got an email address, which is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That is R-I-O vistachurch.com, where you can also find all of the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com forward slash outofwater. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, and on Spotify, as well as in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app, which is available for your iOS or Android device. Sam and I will return next week with yet another in the series, He Gave Us Stories, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.